We are not atomized individuals, but connected to all life by life in the here and now, to all life that has gone before and all life that is yet to come. Hendrikus van Hensbergen and Hannibal Rhodes, great names, right, are my guests today. Hendrikus and Hannibal, or Drieke and Hal, as they're better known, join me to talk about their work with the charity Action for Conservation, which Drieke himself founded. So far, so normal. So AFC, Action for Conservation, started life as a youth-focused charity, but, and I really hope Drieke and Hal don't mind me saying this, It has become so much more, and the name now doesn't even come close to describing the immense, beautiful, breathtaking scope of what this charity actually does. To give you a little flavor, their flagship project is the Penpont Project. It's based on a 500-acre Welsh upland estate in Banau-Brcheniog National Park, what the English will know as Brecon Beacons National Park. And AFC chose Penpont to become the home of what is now the largest intergenerational nature restoration project, I want to stick my neck out here, possibly anywhere in the world. For non-UK listeners, and actually UK listeners too, you might have noticed that my podcast circles back to Wales quite a bit, and let me explain why. This funny little collection of islands, the British Isles, has been the epicenter of a mindset that would send waves of colonization around the world. And it has its own complicated and ancient history of indigenous culture and colonization. And I've touched upon this with other guests. But just for context, within the UK, there are a number of distinct national and regional identities. So the English, the Scots, but there's also the Cornish identity and even Orcadians. So the Orkney Islanders, who I've recently discovered feel a closer affinity to Norway than to Scotland, their closest neighbor. Right back to the Welsh. The Welsh have fought long and hard and probably been the most successful at preserving Cymraeg, the Welsh national language and Welsh identity. And it reminds me a bit of how in Kenya, many Kikuyu men and women of my parents' generation vowed never to speak English as an act of resistance. And I say all that to say this, far from being a niche project tucked away in rural Wales, Penpont echoes so many of our stories around the world. With Hal's background as an anthropologist, coupled with Drieke's background as a zoologist, it means Penpont has been able to pull together the threads of culture, of history, of natural history, farming, relationships, love, life and death, and weave it together through time to bring the past to the present and take the present into the future. When I said this podcast was about finding the real change makers, the practitioners, the people working on the blueprints for making the world a better place, this is exactly the sort of conversation I had in mind. And I fucking loved talking to Drieke and Hal. But of course, I had to start at the obvious place, the beginning, by asking Drieke what made him start Action for Conservation in the first place. An opportunity arose to visit my old secondary school uh, back here in Dorset in a town called Bridport. And 
the chance was to speak to a group of year nine students, which was, was a petrifying opportunity, not on my bucket list. (laughs) And so I, I sort of plucked up the courage to go and went with some, some sort of, I guess, some assumptions about what I'd find. And so my assumption was that those young people wouldn't know much about the work that I was doing and that they wouldn't be that interested in it. And I had the sort of trope of the tech addicted teenager that sort of peddled by the media at that point in time. And I had sort of low expectations about what I'd find if I'm honest. And what I met instead was a really inspiring group of young people who were really interested, really passionate, who clearly cared a lot and were, were concerned about the things we were talking about and that so just for the non Mm. sorry just for the non-uk listeners like how old are year nine students they're in their early teens yeah so secondary school early teens yeah so that kind of lit a bit of a fire in me and i thought wow what what might be possible if if all young people were enabled to act on this passion and a couple of things sort of struck me about the experiences that they were they were really passionate, but there clearly wasn't. There weren't opportunities. There wasn't an outlet for 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 that concern, for that passion. There weren't the practical opportunities for them to to make a difference on these big issues, and that's a hugely disempowering position to be in if you don't have this sense of agency and you can't you can't act. And I came away from from that experience and 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 looked at the sector around me and and a lot of the other big environmental charities in the UK, and there just seemed to be this gap. We were doing all this work with young children and then and then teenage it got to sort of the teenage years and it all dropped off a cliff so it felt like there was a missed opportunity and it really arose the charity grew out of that and we were really fortunate to have some brilliant founding trustees including the writer Rob McFarlane who really cares about this issue and has championed our work for many years now I really was thinking about what you said about how teenagers it's almost like on a societal level, we're afraid of them because there's like two two things or maybe m- multiple things. There's the A, we can't control them. They're sort of a law unto themselves. So there's that fear of like trying to control teenagers and just get that discipline, blah, blah, blah. But the uh, the flip side of that, and this is the bit I find really intriguing, is that age group and children even see things with such clarity. It, like it doesn't make sense to them that our most important like essential workers and first responders, all of that don't get paid as much as a banker. Like, you know, I know a lot of kids when they first discover that these aren't the most important jobs in terms of how well paid they are, they're like, there's something wrong with that because they're the ones that save our lives. Surely they should get paid more. And and I so, so I always find it really interesting talking to children because they sort of see things with that clarity. But then you've got teenagers who still see things with some clarity and very little to lose. And without the fear of like, well, if I say this, I might lose my job. If I if I call this out, what are the consequences for me? So teenagers actually, as as a cohort in our society, have so much potential to make things happen. And I sometimes wonder if not intentionally, I'm not saying there's sort of people <laughs> pulling strings, but you know, there's a way of like they get disempowered. There's so little for teenagers to do, particularly in this country in the UK. I don't know how, because you're the ones working with that age group more than I am. Is this something that you hear from them? Is this reflected back to you? Yeah, I mean, I can very much relate to the the comments, Jillian, about the different professions. I've got a 
three-year-old who's about to turn four and he's in a real outfit changing dressing up phase we're having to deal with like four or five outfit changes a day it's really hard to keep track of but he's not dressing up as a banker he's dressing up as all of those professions that he wants to be a builder a doctor and so on so it's it starts early i think that awareness of the importance of and and they're they're more visible careers of course Mm -hmm. but yes young people i think do reflect that back to us i think there's a sense which you touched on in which young people are almost perceived as 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 dangerous to to the orthodoxy you know it's sort of they they see things with a certain clarity and you could say innocence at times they they cut through the the systems and the ways of thinking that we begin to just accept as we as we grow into them through adulthood so i think in that respect there is though it might not be explicit that there is the sense of a bit of a fear of the power there and i think that's a bit of a well i think that's what i saw a glimpse of when when i when i made that first visit to a school the sense of the the kind of energy in the room that if guided and supported could be really transformational and so i think as a society we are we are afraid of we are afraid of young people. I think and I agree with everything you both said. I also think it's we're at a point where it's getting scarier for the orthodoxy, as you put it, Driki, mm-hmm. because I think a social contract is has been broken, especially around the climate and nature emergencies and the cost of living crisis, which is this idea that in a modern industrial society that every generation will enjoy more prosperity than the generation that came before, or at the very least that there's a continuance of kind of well-being and prosperity. And I don't think young people feel that that is there. So when your leaders don't hold up their end of the bargain, that's when you do get the the, the importance of subcultures and other forms of organising. You know, real change of the kind that we need never starts at the centre. It always starts at the fringes of society with the people who are feeling the impacts. So that's kind of brings us to talking about Penpont. Can you tell me what Penpont is? Where is it? What does it look like? Penpont means head of the bridge in Welsh and mm-hmm. it's a it's a hamlet, it's a small hamlet but basically a large house in a valley just upriver from Brecon on the Usk River. Most of the land is in the Balaidrefeniog National Park, Brecon Beacons National Park. And the whole estate is 2,000 acres and our project site, so the Penpont project site, which exists within that, is 500 acres. So it's it's quite a typical kind of upriver, upland Welsh ecosystem, mixture of grassland, forest, some ancient woodland and some commercial forestry. But it's mainly, it's mainly farming and pasture uh, mm-hmm. land and then a market garden as well in the middle of the, the project site. The land is home to lots of people including the the Hogg family, who are, have been in residence or under different names mm-hmm. uh, over the years. That's changed, obviously, through marriage since 16, the 1660s. And then there's also tenant farmers and lots in the old sort of farm buildings and other, and other uh, residences on the estate, people who have come to live there over the years, including artists and people who make big canvas tents. And it's quite a motley crew of creative people. And what what are the aims, Driki, of um, 
you know, what are you trying to achieve there? Where do you sit on this? Is it a rewilding project? Is it a regenerative agriculture project? How would you describe it? Good question. <laughs> it's many things. Um, <laughs> I mean, if if I can go back one step to to why. So I, I mentioned that kind of the wider sector and this opening up um, and this interest, you know, around the time of the the youth climate strikes in working with with teenagers, um, and and as a result, our work began to as a charity began to gain some prominence, and we were having some really interesting conversations with bigger players in the sector um and we just felt at that point in time that there you know we, we could speak from our experience we had youth trustees at the time or we still do our programs are very youth centered and we've got a young team so we were sort of sharing our experiences but it felt like we needed more we needed something that could really speak to the power of young people in leading something from its outset at scale and really having an impact for nature and for climate and so very fortuitously at that point in time I had a conversation with with the hogs at Pempon and we'd been talking for years about whether we might run a residential camp there or get some young people on site. They they are very sustainably minded in the way that they the way that they work there. We had this idea that maybe we could explore the idea of youth leadership at scale at Pempon. And so that's how it began and it sort of morphed into what we'd call an intergenerational nature restoration project. It, it we work across generations. The young people are only part of the picture, but they play a really important part. So if I was sitting in a room um, or, I don't know, wherever you conduct these these gatherings and meetings, what would I see? Who would be there? And how would those conversations take place? There's a sort of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table element to it where you, you're getting together around the table and seeing the whites of each other's eyes is really important. It's a process that we, I used to work on with the Bio Foundation and which has its origins in collaborations between anthropologists and indigenous and traditional peoples. Mm -hmm. um, it's called eco-cultural mapping and it, it flows by spending time together, by talking, by hearing the stories of your people, the stories of your place. That, that's how everything happens. That's kind of what we wanted to create at Pempon to, to reconnect the people and the stories that they had. The maps are our way of creating artifacts and coming together around those discussions of past, present and future. So we get together and we create those maps. We kind of create them on layers over a map of the actual site. And it's a way of, it's a way of transferring knowledge, but it's also a way of directly involving everybody in physical mark making and creation of a shared sense of place. So what emerges is not a sort of GIS map of exactly how things have looked, do look and will look. It's impressionistic, it's artistic, it's creative, but it also contains a huge wealth of ecological and cultural knowledge that otherwise doesn't get shared. But I think for everybody, regardless of what they're bringing to the table, what happens and something we don't really have a language of vocabulary for in the UK and in English too much, is this sense of everybody comes thinking they know this place, but what they know is their version, their mental kind of landscape, which is constituted of the physical features, memories, active relationships. And what the maps do is create this composite. It's almost like creating a mind. It's like creating a mind on paper. We're, we're creating that place. We're saying this is Penpont. And through those things, you have these amazing conversations which come up. 
I don't know how many 16-year-olds have had an in-depth conversation about subsidy with an upland Welsh hill farmer and yeah. sort of the, the what, what influences their decision-making and really coming to an understanding of that. And you carry all of those discussions, some of which are uncomfortable, some of which are difficult, some of which involve owning histories that belong to us, but which aren't our fault, but which are our responsibility to address and to repair. So that prepares us to do a future map, which is bringing all of our visions together into what we can agree, and then a plan for realizing and actioning that. And that's where we are now. We're in our first year of delivering that vision together, which is a sort of communally consented vision. And at every opportunity, we get young people and all of those partners involved in delivering those actions as well. So the idea, I think, that as it lies at the heart of what we do is that if you if you involve directly people in nature's restoration, they will also be restored. Wow. Let me just bounce straight off the back of what you've just said, because the first time I heard you describe this methodology, um, you know, way of teaching, way of learning, I was I talked to my kids about it in the evening. So I've got a 17 year old, 15 year old. And I was just saying, I was just speaking to these guys and they've come up with this new way of teaching stuff, which is you get an elder, you get a working adult, you get a sort of an emerging adult, you get a teen, you get them all into a room and everyone shares what they know of a subject. And, and I, I, it was kind of interesting because we were like, well, imagine if you taught history this way. Imagine if you taught art this way, English this way. I felt like this is almost like potentially shaking up the way we think of teaching and learning, where there's one person, an adult, usually of a certain age group, standing in front of a group of people and they're imparting knowledge. And this is like kind of a multi-directional sort of sharing and back and forth, if you like. Everyone's got something to teach mm. and everyone certainly has something to learn. So I got really excited about that. But one of the things that you'd said, Hal, earlier, which I just thought, that's really interesting. I wondered if you could expand a bit more on it was you said there isn't really the language, the word for it in English, this idea that everyone comes thinking they know the place, but actually what mm. they know is their, the mental landscape, the, the picture they have in their heads. Can you unpack what that, where you've, where you, are there other cultures, languages that describe that better? I think it's one of those where I'm, I'm not going to pretend I know. I'm not a great linguist. I sort of speak a few things badly. And English <laughs> probably worst of all, but I think what I mean is our English language doesn't convey this sense that places are made and that the making of a place is a multi-species. There are, are words, there's a famous one in, in Welsh, which is it, is, it means kind of land, but it also means, and I'm uh, probably any Welsh speaker is not going to enjoy this butchering of, of the concept, but it, it it also means belonging and it, and it can encompass loads of different meanings, but it directly speaks to connection. Whereas I might have to say, I feel really connected to such and such a place. I could just say, I, I have Harayath with this place, or I have, you know, some, some sense of that. And I think there, there are other wor words, and again, my pronunciation's going to be poor, but in German, there's Waldeinsamkeit, which means the mm -hmm. feeling of being alone in a wood. I haven't come across any that 
and, and maybe it's a fun thing people can send them in if they if yeah. they have these and, and and I'd love to be proved wrong but I I don't feel like we have a strong grasp of that idea in English of of the process that's involved in placemaking mm. and so the maps are just a way of kind of aggregating all of that into a single creative space most of us who have been even had any small experiences in the outdoors know that some places really reach out to you and are like they inspire you or they create wonder in you Na nature is not passive nature is not dead or unalive and we have to find language for that and i think we're trying to turn our language around a bit in in that sense and mm -hmm. difficult to do that and it can often sound contrived but the maps do it without words and they do it through process so that's really the magic of it for me wow i love that places are made and just to add wow. yeah briefly to that Dylan, because i think it's fascinating that the context in the uk in which we've you know we're a highly urbanized society we passed the threshold of 50% of our population living in cities in the, in the 19th century compared to the rest of the world in this century. We're also way ahead of the curve in terms of the destruction and degradation of the natural world. We rank pretty low on the list of countries in terms of our, our biodiversity, and it's, it's obviously disappearing fast. And that mm -hmm. has obviously come hand in hand with the loss of language for place. There's something Robert McFarlane, our trustees, wrote written about extensively, This the kind of particular words that we attach to places and the distinctions we make and, and how's example of the word connection is a good one. It lacks depth or specificity. Um, and I think this is what other languages, uh, you know, do much better. They, because, because they, their cultures still remain enriched by, by that diversity, by that biodiversity, they, they have a more particular and specific way of talking about the, the feelings, the connections, um, the places and the species that they live in and around. We've all woken up to the idea of how we spend our money can be our loudest vote. But what about where we keep our money, who we bank with? According to the Consumer Association, UK high street banks are amongst the worst culprits when it comes to financing fossil fuels, arms companies, and frankly, all the stuff we don't think about when we think about positive change. So Triodos Bank has been blazing a trail for the financial sector in ethical and sustainable banking for over 40 years. They're top rated by Ethical Consumer Magazine. They've been named Best Ethical Financial Provider at the British Bank Awards. They're B Corps certified. And they are 2023's Charities Bank of the Year. They're doing really good stuff. Their aim is simple, to be a safe and secure bank for your money while being totally transparent with what they do with your money. So no lending or investing in fossil fuel projects and focusing instead on renewable energy, nature regeneration, and community-based projects. I honestly couldn't be happier or prouder to have them as a sponsor for If I Rule the World. One of the things that I think will come as a surprise to a lot of listeners is the the, the, the fact that a kind of colonization, a disruption has happened in Britain as well as in the rest of the world. And I've spoken about this with other guests. And I just wondered, given where you, where Pinepont is in Wales, in one of the Celtic nations, what's your perspective on that? How, how do you see 
this kind of history on repeat, where are we on that spectrum in terms of Britain and its nations reconciling kind of what's happened here, let alone what's happened in other parts of the world? I think following on from what I was just talking about. I saw a brilliant talk by the historian David Olisoga last mm-hmm. month, I think it was, and he talked about the original wound among the UK's population, and that and that dates back to enclosure, to these histories of colonisation, of of basically turning people away from the land that they're connected to, the loss of that connection to uh, to, to places, to nature, um, that urbanisation, that story of urbanisation all goes hand in hand in in determining where we are today in determining our, our level of connection to nature and to place in in the UK so it has to be seen as you've rightly said Julian in 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 that sort of longer term view uh, in that deeper time view of 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 where we've come from in this country and and then perhaps relating that to what we've done elsewhere in the world the the approaches that have been used here uh, and so and the Pempon project for us is at a deeper level is an opportunity to challenge some of those really deep rooted issues. It's an opportunity to think about, well, if, if, if we are so um, ecologically impoverished in this country and our connection to nature is so impoverished as it is, if, if we can do something here, if we can make a difference, if we can start to rebuild that eco-cultural fabric, that connection, then we should be able to do it anywhere because, if anything, the, the damage is, is deepest here. I often think that with the work here and working on the watches, there's obviously a big pressure to big up British wildlife. That's what the program's about. But, you know, when people say, what's the best thing about British wildlife? And I sort of pause slightly because I'm like, well, you know, it, this is one of the most nature-impoverished countries in the world. So how do I big this up? And I have to be genuine about it and authentic. And one of the things I do think is, well, especially living in Cornwall, which is very much a post-industrial landscape, but we just don't see it like that because it's also a pretty holiday destination. But I think, well, it's in some ways also the place where maybe experiment is the wrong word, but it is like an experiment where what happens when you give nature an inch and from so many regeneration projects it's it's clear that nature can bounce back from you know mm. sometimes like what look like post apocalyptic landscapes particularly up in former mining sites as especially so it's it's not all necessarily oh you just need to drop the reins and everything is fine let nature no. take over but i think this is a great i mean in some ways britain is also like perhaps a proving ground for regeneration and and healing yeah and what happens when what happens to people when they give nature that inch as well? It's sort of, it's the two hand in hand and back to Hal's point, making every opportunity to take practical action to to restore nature, making every opportunity to restore nature an opportunity to bring young people into the frame to give them a hand in it or people more widely that the issue of nature connection extends right across society. But seeing that as a, a program of mass engagement across the UK and an opportunity for people to restore their their well-being their health uh, alongside it this is a podcast in some ways you know one of the aims of this is to try and shine a light on the sort of invisible barriers to change and i think 
identifying maybe what David Olasoga, the historian, calls the, the original wound, it might be shining a light on one of those invisible barriers to change. How, I know you, is there anything that you feel, what you, anything you want to add to that in terms of how you see that story in this mm. country, in the UK? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think the story of, of a kind of original wound is attractive, mm -hmm. but in this country, perhaps above, all, <laughs> well, no, maybe not perhaps above all countries, but certainly in the case of this country, the story is hard to unravel. It, mm -hmm. You know, the sort of, I often think the original wound kind of narrative is it's a bit of a sort of Garden of Eden. Since the earliest people arrived here, it's been waves of constant coming and going, some of it driven by the environment, other things driven by cultural shifts and change, like the arrival of agriculture, hunter-gatherer peoples. But there are no hunter-gatherer languages left in almost all of Europe, a few tiny pockets. It's all agrarian cultures. And so there was that replacement and that and those languages. So Celtic languages have an agricultural root. So there's this like long history that's hard to unpick. And it's a bit like I thought was thinking when you were talking about wildlife, it's like rabbits. They weren't here. Then they got, they were here before some ice age. Then they disappeared during an ice age. Then they came back and now they're native again because they can be here because they can live here because they can adapt. I'm not so interested in these. I like, I think sometimes. And especially it's been a, a terrible problem of British nature writing, perhaps in earlier times, that there is this kind of tendency towards like an idea of purity, an idea that there's things that belong here and things that don't belong here. First of all, that's not true. The, the, the story of the world is of flux and change and adaptation and indigeneity. I think means being well adapted and that often takes long long periods of time and being colonized doesn't help and having that damage done to you so in the context of of penpont i think it's about being deeply grateful for the things that we have left for example the welsh language i i don't i'm not a fluent welsh speaker but it is an absolute treasure that we have the welsh language still there a language mm. deeply adapted to and grown out of place and I think that the project has tried to be really conscious of not only the ecological situation we're inheriting, but also the cultural context in which we're working. And that working with local people, with Welsh speakers, with people who feel that sense of deep longing and belonging to place that's summed up in terms like Hiraeth isn't a nice to have, it's absolutely essential. And that's why our project isn't straightforwardly a rewilding project. It's not a regenerative agriculture project. It's not an education project. It's like, let's get rid of the whole or business. It's this or that. It's, it's this and that. And it has mm -hmm. to be those things. And I think looking forward, there's a quote that I love from an American writer who's written about ecological restoration, Laura Martin, and, and she says that ecological restoration can be a mode of reconciliation with the human past. And I think Driki was describing what that looks like is, you know, there, there are perhaps many original wounds and we've all inherited those. And it's a trauma that exists in our society and has been inflicted outwards from our society and can ecological restoration and the moments of wonder and joy and collectivity that that has the potential to bring act as a 
form of reconciliation, not towards any sort of past state, but to a new positive state, you know, one in which you've got people speaking English and Welsh and Scots and people who are from any background who've ended up in this country by whatever sort of flow of history or, or change or forced migration or whatever it might be. Anybody can belong to a place. They just need to take the time to come to know it, to work with that place and to take it seriously as something that is alive, not something we live on, but something we live in. I think that is like you've hit really on what the ultimate task is, which is to become part of a place again. You know, I know this is the opposite of what a podcaster should do. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to ruin the moment. <laughs> so, I mean, oh God, you almost wanted to, I almost felt like crying when you said about anyone can belong. Because I have a very multi-ethnic background from Asia, Africa, and parts of Europe, I'm Creole, basically. I'm born in Kenya. I talk a lot about Kenya because that was where I spent my early years. But I feel like someone who, because of, I guess, the impact of colonization and the British Empire, I exist because of that. Every single generation that we can trace back, there was like a mixing of cultures, a mixing of ethnicities. Um, you know, people crossed continents and oceans willingly or sometimes not. And so I sort of sit here now in 2023. Uh, I call myself a black woman, a Creole, and I just don't know if, I mean, there's simply no way for me to kind of go, well, this is where I come from and that's where I'm going to go back to. If I wanted to somehow like invoke some indigenous roots, that doesn't exist for me and I don't think I'm alone. So to hear you say that is, especially someone I've spent so long thinking about this stuff and it's the first time I've heard that. It's pretty, it makes a big difference in, in feeling like what belonging means and that it can be for everyone. So I think that's really powerful. Whew, so back to the project. Dricky, did you know, like this is where, you, this is the kind of conversation you'd end up having any sense that when you started AFC Action for Conservation, this is where you'd be? Uh, no, <laughs> um, is the short answer. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think I'd be here. I think it started, well, I've, I've talked about the, the roots of the organization, I think there was this sense of an unmet need and a real opportunity i mean we we've just been touching on diversity in in all senses of the word another big issue which we haven't actually mentioned yet is is the lack of diversity within the environmental movement within the environmental sector so that was another another big theme as we established the charity and it's one of our core values along with some of the others how mentioned wonder hope mm. action change is really formative for us as a charity we wanted to get young people from all backgrounds to feel that they could belong in in this sector, in this space, in getting involved with this kind of work. And so I suppose that that sowed the seeds for this this deeper work we're, we're doing um, at Pempont. But no, I certainly didn't have any idea that this is where we'd end up. I think it was just a, a lucky series of dominoes knocking one into the other has resulted in us being here with a really fantastic opportunity to to make a difference and share something with the hopefully with the wider sector that might shape how we do this work and how we look at landscapes and how we create belonging i definitely think what's changing for me as i get older is um i mean i still love traveling but when i was younger it was about seeing as many places as possible 
And mm -hmm. I'm now starting to see the value of seeing the same place for as long as possible. Hal, how about you? I know you're so well-traveled and you've worked in so many places. Like, do you have a favorite place, a favorite animal, favorite species? Does it work like that for you? <laughs> yeah, I think it does. I, I think it's interesting. I've reflected a lot on it mm -hmm. over the years. I think, you know, my own journey as a young person, I think I was very like you, Julian. I sort of came out university and the world felt open and I wanted to work with different peoples in different places and expand my own experience, I very quickly realized that it was absolutely nothing to do with me and what I wanted. And the, the work was really about meeting people where they were and being in solidarity with them. And that, that was an incredibly formative and powerful part of my life. I, I, I got to meet amazing people, amazing places, see animals that I'd never thought I would see. I really love birds. And I, I remember in Ethiopia seeing pelicans and African fish eagles and things like that. Just, just amazing. But in the, in the end, I felt like even though I was, I, I felt satisfied with the work I was doing because I was being directed by the people who lived there. And that was always the most important thing. In the end, it was, these are not my places. They are these people's places and they know them best. And, and so I felt a call to work much closer to home. Now, obviously I'm not Welsh and I, I do work with AFC and other uh, regions of, of England as well. But there's something about having a more intuitive understanding of a landscape, a temperate sort of Northern European landscape. And my favorite places and animals, you know, we are in a nature depleted situation and I see that more and more. I, I notice things that aren't around from when I was a child now, but I still love those places like incredibly deeply. And for me, I feel, I do feel a huge kinship with, with Penpon and with the people there, but also I grew up on the chalk downlands in, in Wiltshire. Uh, so chalk streams and, uh, swat, lots of swans. And there was a, a pair of black swans that used to be on the river when I was a child and just feel they were incredibly enigmatic. And they're obviously also they, they travel and they see different things, but they always felt at home on the river. So I think probably, probably where I walk with my grandfather over the water meadows on the chalk is where I feel most, most at home and where my memory is most wrapped into the landscape. But I'm hopeful that at Penpont I can start sort of, I have started intermingling with that space as well. And if you rule the world, what would you do? If I ruled the world, do you know what's very interesting? I just got back from Penpont and we had a very similar conversation, which was like, if you could change the rules, what would you do? I would, and this is quite a boring answer, but I would change our basic form of governance from these small snipped up parcels of, you know, inherited historically into bioregions so that our fundamental basic kind of unit of life in terms of how we relate to people and make decisions was based on nature's logic rather than human logic. And that has lots of connotations around how we take down illogical borders and break out of silly things like thinking about rural and urban as a binary and not the fact that they're both in the same watershed and things like that. So I think, mm. I think so that's something that would have real transformational potential is if we started seeing 
ourselves as part of natural communities and organizing our societies accordingly. And within that intergenerational governance of the bioregion. Drakey, how about you? If you rule the world, what would you do? Can I say I just wouldn't rule the world? <laughs> Is that not allowed? <laughs> um, oh uh, my gosh, he's opting out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm opting out of ruling the world. Um, no, I, I mean, one of the wonderful things about Action for Conservation in our work is that there are lots of people with a shared view of how things should and could be. So I knew in in, in how going first that he'd he'd cover off the majority of it. I think the only the only thing to add is is to extend, uh, as you touched on, how to extend that intergenerational learning, but also outdoor learning. I feel like every every young person should be free and enabled to be outdoors and to learn outdoors and to learn from nature. I think we'd be living in a very different society if that is how education was delivered and if those were the the sort of values that shaped young people as they grew up. We can we can change change society and we can change the future by supporting young people to see things differently and mm-hmm. take make different decisions. I just wanted to I normally finish there, but there's been a little kind of thing pinging in the back of my mind of a conversation that we skirted around that's not directly related to AFC's work, but it's something I'm noticing. And I don't know whether you guys are going to help me be able to help me understand this phenomena, which is the... And this isn't just with you. It's like almost everyone I speak to in the context of this podcast or in the other work I do, as soon as we're like recording, as soon as we are in the sort of moment of sharing a conversation that we know other people are going to hear, it changes something, right? And we talked about, I sort of used the word string pulling earlier, and then we kind of skirted around that. And I just wanted, I mean, this is not necessarily to use, but I'm genuinely curious And because this is a podcast about invisible barriers and trying to work out what is getting in the way of positive change, um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Like, why do we kind of, at the last minute, pull back to just saying what it is that we think is the problem? Good question. It is a good question. I mean, (laughs) to me, I think perhaps string pulling is a bit of a red herring because I don't, I don't, I mean, there, there will be string pulling, <laughs> obviously, um, in, in many aspects of um, how this country is run and, and, and how our society operates. But I think, for me, the conversation we're having about those deeper wounds, plural, um, and how that has shaped who we are is, is at the root of this issue. And that, and that is often very intangible and hard to put a, put a finger on mm. because it's so deep-rooted because it's so complex as Hal said it's difficult to unravel so I think that's what we're I think that's what we're grappling with is that we live in a society which is shaped by all all of these histories all of these stories we grasp at straws or we grasp at one thing one issue one way perhaps we'd prefer things to be done uh, and there are a million others that intersect with with that thing so it feels hard for me uh, certainly I'm I'm often sort of like stunned into feeling like I can't grapple with that wider problem and and I think that's mm. that's the big invisible barrier is it it can feel insurmountable the image that I have in mind as you were saying that was like it's almost like being painted onto a giant canvas and you've been sort of rolled flat onto the canvas so 
you can't actually peel yourself out of the picture to see the big picture. Mm -hmm. it, it sort of feels sometimes like that. Mm -hmm. Hal, do you have any ideas why we we find it hard oh, to name <laughs> or, or even identify, shine a light on what it is that's getting in the way on the many things that are getting in the way? Yeah, well, I think it's probably, like, I agree with Drew, there's a reticence to say one thing and give it undue kind of influence over everything. And I do think it's really valuable to like point out complexity, but I think there's a way of doing that, which is like, not like a politician would do it, which is like, it's complicated. You know, it's, it's all, there's also an honesty. Which is that. probably what I did. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, 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 but politicians will say something's complicated to deflect, but it's, then there's a difference between that and being like, there's a complexity here. And maybe that's, that's part of the problem is, I, I can't remember who it was who said that people who don't have good intentions don't care about what they say. Because it's simply about winning, making money, doing this out of the other. If you're on the other side and you're looking for the truth of something, you're probably more likely to be like, well, I don't know. And there's a sort of intellectual, moral humility to that. Mm. But sometimes that probably makes us less bold in calling out things that are obviously wrong. And that's that's not a good thing. I think that happens to us in all sorts of different ways. But in relation to your like specific question around what's the... What's this rupture when you like come into a space which is suddenly in some way public? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's deep in human psychology. Like, this is why there was, I can't remember who came up with the idea, but this idea of the panopticon, like a prison design in which all of the cells face inwards to look at each other. Because people have known for a really long time that when people feel watched, viewed, scrutinized, they change. Wow. And partly that's how society works. Like we all hold each other to account and we do things differently because people can see us and we feel accountable to other people. And I think there's probably even amongst, you know, it, this isn't like a political debate show, which I'm sure people would have like a much more intense version of this, but like even amongst friends and like-minded people, we edit ourselves to be in that shared space. And I think sometimes that's good. And then sometimes, as you say, it's like, can we interrogate this together and say, like, what are we not saying that we actually all think we want to say? So I think the real opportunity is like, how do you hold conversations in such a way that, like you're asking this question, we can actually say it. So I can say, I think capitalism's the problem and that has mysterious and deep origins and pervades every aspect of society and reduces us all to units of capital and if you're a lower unit of capital like a young person who doesn't produce any economic value and is a passive consumer that's why you're kind of like there's a very deep level on which that's why you're excluded from our society hmm. but it's kind of like i still feel like right now that's a little bit scary to say it because it's like what if someone doesn't agree with me i think that's it's very human and it, it just takes courage or, or, or the holding of a space where you ask the question so thanks for asking the question yeah well, th thank you, A, for for stepping up to that. I appreciate that. But I also think you brought some compassion to that phenomenon because I really like that, that people who care, care about what they say. That last point that Howe was making was was really interesting and I was just thinking about the, the panopticon of um, society today and the governance of this mm -hmm. country and whether people can see everyone else in their cell or not, that's kind of the, the invisible barrier, isn't it? We don't we don't have a clear view yeah. of the situation in many cases. But yeah, that's just a trailing thought that's <laughs> taking root, which will probably wanna, end up I mean, do you want to expand on that? Because, um, you know, it, it, it's better to ha say it and 
say it and not regret not saying it. it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, because that's, I mean, it is quite like I've never heard of that, the Panopticon. So do you want to pick up on that? Yeah. I mean, it. how was it? Was it Victorian prison, prison design? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, possibly slightly earlier. I can't remember. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like an odd, an odd analogy for our society, but it, it, at once it's important that we can see each other because that's transparency and that that's how we establish norms and build a society in relation to other people uh, how we how we build relationships and, and communicate but it just it just struck me as how was talking about this idea of of the panopticon that we, we are living in a society now in which we only partially see what's happening and there are those with a, a clearer view perhaps and and those who who only see that partial view and and i think that's that is one of the invisible barriers is that the, the the way our politics operates the way our country is governed people don't feel they they have a clear view or have a say and back to house point about that idea of intergenerational governance you know there's some really interesting stuff going on there's some great books on on this one thing that struck me particularly was in japan these kind of future councils where people gather dressed in ceremony ceremonial robes of the future and those spaces are intergenerational and they and they talk about how things should operate in the future that idea of thinking about people uh, in the future many generations seven generations ahead feels to me like one of the fundamental ways in which we can adjust our perspectives in the present we we really lack the ability as a species to think longer term and think about future generations we actively devalue them in in, in monetary terms um apart from anything else um so i think finding spaces in which we we both have have an equal and clear view of each other and and the situation uh, and spaces in which we we start to open up that view on the future and future generations in order to shape and form our decision-making in the present is really interesting. Do you think it's that we lack the ability to think ahead as a species or is it as a culture? That's a really good question, Gillian, because there's plenty of evidence of cathedrals are a great example, cathedral thinking. They're built over many generations over hundreds of years in some case cases you know the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona is a, a good example of, of one man's vision Gaudi that's that's persisting into the present and attracts many generations of people to to come and be a part of that vision and, and construct that vision so I, I think it is cultural as opposed to us being unable to do that there are many indigenous communities that that seventh, seventh generation thinking is a or seven generation thinking is is an indigenous way of 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 thinking and of being and of operating and of decision making. I think it's Western society that that has sort of drummed that out of us. Yeah, I agree. I think it is cultural, and I think the whole story, the big societal story, we've been told about all good things coming out of mutual self interest and endless growing expansive potential the societies that have successfully sustained themselves and their cultures over millennia have balanced their creative outward drives with self-regulation and senses of collective purpose collective wholeness there's a cultural problem in the way we're approaching it uh, potentially and, and the way that we're thinking about something like climate change and try to deal with it entirely in the present as a charity, 
but also as a business or whatever else you're running, we are, we are squeezed into short-term cycles. How do human beings make decisions? What values and stories underpin those decisions is ab- absolutely at the heart of this problem. And going back to the panopticon, if you think about a problem like the, the climate crisis and everybody's looking and you can see it like when problems come up around like pollution of waterways, people aren't thinking, what are all the problems and how do we address them all? They're thinking, how can I make sure that I'm not the biggest problem and therefore I can tell someone to sort their stuff out first? You know, the UK does this all the time in climate discussions. like, oh, well, you know, if China doesn't stop doing this, I mean, it's like, you know what, it's right, but you can't claim to be a leader and say you'll only lead when someone else is taking the lead. If we want to kind of break out of that prison of self inward looking, then leadership means taking responsibility for the past. It means that process of reconciliation and it means stepping out of yourself and no one's going to do that for you. 100%. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love how Action for Conservation's work and the Penpont project may have started as a youth-focused project, but as Driggy said, young people are only part of the picture and of course, Young people will become old people, and life is a journey rather than a series of age groups. Basically, this is the real work of, I was going to say community, but I think I'd go as far as saying this is the real work of being human and the social species that we are, spending time with each other and hearing each other's stories and finding all the things we can agree on before we begin the delicate work of reaching a consensus on all the things we don't agree on. By the way, the maps that Hal refers to throughout. They are beautiful and really moving and 100% my jam. I call myself the analog girl in the digital world. So I absolutely love the fact that the process of mapping the past, the present and the future of Penpont was done by hand. And honestly, there's something really special to see the sketches, the drawings, the mark making, the handwriting. You know, data is great at capturing information, but the hand reveals so much more. So you can see for yourself if you use the links in the show notes. And let me know what you think of the maps, of this episode, of the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch on Spotify's Q&A function. You can email me on podcast at julianburtvoice.com. You can sign up to my newsletter on my website. I won't spam your inbox with loads of newsletters and stuff. Honestly, I don't send newsletters out nearly as much as I should. And this is probably not what my sponsors want to hear. But speaking of sponsors, thank you to my sponsors. You know, a friend of mine recently reminded me that when I started talking about wanting to do a podcast way back in 2019, I said to her that Triodos were my dream sponsors because I felt like our values aligned. And this is not something I have ever said of a bank, but it's the truth. And I honestly had never approached any other sponsor. I just kept grinding Triodos down. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I just kept developing the concept and the idea and honing it until they got it. And they, they did. And I just want to say thank you to Triodos for supporting me and making today's conversation possible. And talking about today's conversation, I think it's an example of what happens when the guardrails come down. You know, from where we started about talking about the conservation project and action for conservation, a charity, to where we ended up, where we were talking about why is it that we hold back our thoughts? And I think Hal really nailed it so simply, yet so profoundly, when he asked, what is it that we're not saying that we would like to say? 
So I'd like to wind things up with not my usual, if you rule the world, what would you do? Which I've noticed, by the way, I slip into some sexy time parody voice. Sorry about that. I'm working on it. Now, today I'm going to sign off by inviting you to take some time and with care and consideration and compassion, ask yourself, what is it that I am not saying that I would like to say? Thank you for listening.